I was recently invited to uh, speak to a group of middle school boys, actually young men here in Georgetown that are getting ready to be middle schoolers. And when I was asked to do that, they said, uh, just come in and, and just share something that you would have liked to have been told or something you wish you would have known as you were preparing to enter middle school as a young man. And so that took me back uh, 25, 26 years ago. And I was thinking back to that time, and that was right around the time where I was introduced to Jesus for the first time. I was at a, a summer camp experience. And although it wasn't a Christian camp, our counselor, our cabin counselor, was a Christian, and so he preached the gospel that night. And I remember trying to pray the prayer. I said it probably seven or eight times, emphasizing different words, trying to ensure that I had gotten it right, because the place that he had described sounded horrible, and I did not want to go there. And I remember from that point thinking, okay, now I'm a Christian. I've prayed the prayer. I've, I've said the, the, the right words, and I've I've done this thing called accepting Jesus into my heart, and so it's kind of sweet. I have this kind of freedom, this blank moral check. I can act however I want because he paid it all, and I remember that that kind of fueled into my middle school and high school years, and, and as I was thinking about what, what am I going to share with these boys about you know, what I wish I would have known or what I would have done differently, and, and so the thing that stuck out to me was just how how much I lacked integrity in those years. And what I mean by that is, is I was at a place where I cared a great deal about what other people thought of me, and I would go to great lengths in that season of life to manage what I thought they would see as, as who I was. I was in image maintenance mode at all times. And it was, it was really quite silly because back then we had CD players in our cars. You guys still have CD players? Okay, so compact discs, yes. And I had this really sweet case logic black case, and I could store 50 CDs in there. It was awesome. And I realized that if I was clever enough, I could even store 100 CDs because I could store one facing this way, and then if I turned it over, I could slip CDs in the backside, and I could double its capacity. And so I did that, and not only did I do that with, with CDs that I loved, I also had my Christian CDs in there, okay? So I had all my, my good music on one side, and then I flipped it, and I put my Christian CDs in there. And the reason why I did that is because when people would get into my car, depending on who they were, if they were one of my friends from youth group, or whether they were my friends from school, the ones that I actually hung out with, depending on who would get in my car, I would hand them the case logic case a different way so that the first thing they would open to would either be Christian music or then everything else. Now, I thought that was pretty clever. I didn't realize that once they turn the first page, they're going to see the backside, right? And so it didn't play out the way that I thought it would, but I was still extremely concerned about what people thought, and that concern led me to a life that was divided. I was not consistent. I was very much one way to some people and another way to other people. And this lifestyle of trying to appear Christian at some times 
but not desiring Christ or loving him or his ways inside would lead me to, when I was around different people, I was quite a different person and felt no conflict with that. And so I absolutely lacked integrity. If we understand integrity to be this state of being undivided or whole, being able to bear weight or scrutiny, and standing up and being consistent regardless of the tension. This is not only a term that describes humanity or individual character, but it's also used in the architectural world. When you talk about a building or a bridge that lacks integrity, it means that it's not able to bear weight, and so it's not structurally sound. There are divisions, there are cracks, there are things that aren't up to code that could cause wind bearing weight it to crumble. And so as I was thinking about what I was going to share with those boys, it actually was in line with what I felt the Lord wanted me to to turn us to today. And so we're going to be looking at a passage of Scripture that is probably familiar to most of you. It's the parable of the Good Samaritan. But we're going to read it in its whole context, and we're going to see something at play here. And it's something that challenges my middle school self but I also find it extremely challenging to my adult self and that the things that I struggled with in middle school are the things that I still am tempted today with. So let's turn to Luke chapter 10. We will be in uh, verses 25 through 37. And behold, a lawyer stood up to him to test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? The him here is Jesus. He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? That's Jesus responding to this young lawyer. And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, the lawyer, Desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, well, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. And so we have a very interesting scene. First of all, we understand the key players here. We have a lawyer. All right, or a Jew, uh, an expert in the Jewish legal system, so an expert in the law, right? All of the, the law and the prophets from the Old Testament. This was a young man who had spent his life devoted to studying these things and was an expert in them. And so he 
seeing Jesus as a rabbi, it was not uncommon for them to test the rabbis in the area of the law. And so he tests Jesus with this kind of profound question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Rabbi. And Jesus says, well, what does the law say? Right? He says, what's written in the law? How do you read it? And the young lawyer, legal expert, says, well, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And this is, remember, Jesus has responded when he was asked, what is the greatest commandment? This was his response. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And a second one that is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. In these two are summed up all the law and the prophets. Okay, so when Jesus is put on the spot, this is the the right answer. And the the lawyer has the right answer. He gets it, right? He He hits the answer on the head. But it's interesting because he doesn't stop there. In verse 29, he says, but he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, right, to show that he was really religious, really devout, and very knowledgeable, asks this question, and who is my neighbor? And notice that Jesus doesn't point out a certain people group. He simply tells them a parable. And in this parable, there are some interesting key players. You have a priest. So this would have been a priest in the Jewish temple. And you have a Levite. This would have been somebody who serves in the, worship, in the, the Jewish temple. And then you have a Samaritan. Now, Samaritan in this time period would have been, and this goes back hundreds of years, at the, at the time that Jesus is sharing this parable, maybe six to 700 years of animosity between Jews and Samaritans had existed. They certainly weren't considered a part of the chosen people during that time period. And so the assumption was that these commandments, this love your neighbor as yourself commandment, well, this was relegated to for Israelites loving other Israelites, the people in the club. That's who we love. But all of a sudden, Jesus enters this different character, a Samaritan, someone who's outside of the club, someone who would have, they would have had great animosity for. He enters this gentleman into the story. And so this, as the story goes, they're going from this individual who gets robbed and left for dead, everything taken from him, is traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. And it's a pretty steep downhill grade. I think it's roughly 3,500 feet over the course of 10 miles. So it's it's decent downgrade. It was also pretty barren, although there were some caves and some little kind of outcroppings and so places for people to hide. And it was a very treacherous road. It was dangerous, and there was a lot of theft that went on, because especially for anybody traveling alone. And so as somebody's coming down... They're at a disadvantage because they can't see around the next turn, and they are able to be attacked and robbed frequently. So this is the road that this is happening on. And as Jesus tells this story, the first individual to come along is a priest, someone who's called for the love and care to carry out the law and the prophets, all that they had taught, and teach people how to observe the law and the prophets and follow God. And he comes along, and on his path... He sees, the, Samar- or he sees the, the gentleman who has been robbed, laying there, left for dead. And as he sees him, he travels to the other side of the road in order to avoid this one in need. 
And then Jesus tells us about a second person that happens to be coming along the road. And this person is a Levite, also somebody who would have understood the customs and the requirements of the law, somebody who worked in the temple, helped facilitate the worship through sacrifice of the Israelites. And he sees this gentleman in need. And rather than getting up close to see if he can help, what does he do? He passes to the other side and avoids this gentleman in need. And so then the third person comes along, a Samaritan. Oof, not one of them. A Samaritan sees the same individual and someone who's not, in theory, educated in the law and the prophets and just understands basic human love, sees the, Samar- sees the, the robber, or not the robber, sees the person who had been robbed, and doesn't move to the other side, but moves in closer. And gets close enough to identify this man is in great need. Not only does he begin to nurse his wounds with oil and wine, puts him on his own animal, carries him the rest of the way into town, finds a place for him to stay, puts up money enough for a couple of days to take care of him, and then promises the innkeeper... Once, if, if, if he's not better in a couple days and you need to do even more for him, just put it on my tab. When I come back, I'll pay you plenty. And so he takes care of him. This is the example that's given to this young lawyer by Jesus. This is his answer to the question, what? Who's my neighbor? And instead of saying, well, that person's your neighbor, that person's your neighbor, that person's your neighbor, notice what Jesus says. He tells him a story about what it's like to be a neighbor. Not who is the neighbor, but how are you acting as a neighbor to those around you? And not just the club, not just the people that are in the club, but he says any person that you encounter that is in need is considered a neighbor at this point. And there's there's a couple of things that we can draw from this Samaritan, but I think that feeds into even the bigger question, which is what is on the mind of the lawyer. And so let's, let's consider a couple of things that are happening for this Samaritan. First of all, he sees. They all see. Notice uh, it says here, um, the priest was going down the road and he saw him and passed away on the other side. The Levite was also coming along and he saw him and passed the other way. Then it says, the Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. So the first thing is the response of these three individuals. The first two, it isn't that they don't see, it's that they see and they avoid. Their concern is for their own well-being more than that of the person in need. So their response is one of self-compassion rather than compassion for those in need. And the Samaritan, he sees, and yet he's moved by compassion and love for that individual, not concerned for himself. And so one of the things you identify here is we're called to see, and we're called to respond when we see those in need. When we see a person in need, that is a neighbor. And when we see a neighbor having a need, rather than being concerned for self as the first response, we ought to pray and ask that the Lord give us a response and a heart to respond with compassion first 
Second thing, it's a kind of compassion that was risky. It was risky. It wasn't a safe bet. Because who knows? The robbers could still be there. The robbers could be waiting for somebody to come along and help this individual and then take them out too. We don't know why the priest and the Levite in Jesus' story avoided him. Some may argue, well, they were, it was a noble calling because maybe they were concerned that the person was dead and, and they would ritually be unclean and not allowed to touch. But we see based on the rest of the story that it, it has to do more with compassion than following the religious traditions in this circumstance. And so, he has compassion and he acts and it's risky. Because he doesn't know if there's a continued threat. He doesn't know how much it's going to cost him to help this individual. And he's willing to spend whatever it takes to nurse him back to health. And so he puts his own situation at risk. He could have been robbed. He could have ended up in the same way that this man did. But he's willing to engage with him nonetheless. He then takes his own animal that he was probably traveling on. Puts this man on that animal gives him a ride all the way in, spends his own oil and wine to nurse this man back to health, gives out of his own pocketbook and gives of his own money to pay for this man to have not only a place to stay, but also provisions for multiple days. And then he he says, and whatever else you need. So he didn't even put a limit on it. He didn't say, here's 20 bucks. If he needs any more, you can use that. But he says, whatever else it takes to help this man. I'll pay you back when I come around. And so you see there's risk involved, incredible risk. And so as he walks this man, this young lawyer, through the story, Jesus is confronting him in a couple of different ways. There's first of all, this man wants to appear religious, right? He wants to, not only does he have the right answer, but he wants to show that he's also willing to... um, be taught himself, and appear as very pious and religious. And so Jesus responds, and rather than just giving him the right answer to who's my neighbor, he demonstrates this idea of being a neighbor. It's not about what you do, it's about who you are that Jesus is most concerned with. Because the lawyer was used to doing that which it looked like to be religious. He was used to behaving and carrying himself and having the right answers and going through the motions so that his appearance to everyone watching would be one of high understanding of the law and also himself very pious and religious. But Jesus responds to what this man actually needs. And he needs to be challenged not in what does it look like, but what does it feel like to have eternal life. Because he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus' response is ultimately, it's not what you do. It's who you are. And a follower of Christ is somebody who is so transformed by new life in him that they recognize those people in need around them. They recognize and they operate out of grace For those that are in their path, 
that they have compassion on those in need because they have received compassion. They will act out of love and mercy and do justice and walk humbly with their God because they've been transformed. Not because they have the right answers or they sing the right songs or they go to Sunday school or they go to the right church or that they just stopped cussing or they no longer drink or whatever else. It's not these external things that Jesus is saying is one that would mark you as someone who has eternal life. It's you have been transformed. And that's demonstrated by the way that you treat other people, especially those that seem like, "Eh, that's a little risky. I don't know if I should because it might cost. I don't know if I should because it it may require more of me than, than I'm willing to give, and it might disrupt my comfort. It might put some people in harm's way. It might put me in harm's way. But what he's saying is this compassion is risky. Being a follower of Christ, being a good neighbor, that's risky. And that's precisely what we're called to. And the challenge that he lays out in front of this young lawyer challenges me most because when I go back to my middle school self, the one that had all the cool CDs and the Christian CDs, that that young man was going to wrestle for the bulk of his adult life with this desire to appear religious and to appear as a Christian. But when it came to the people that were placed on my path directly in front of me, unless it was popular, I was, had a tendency more to avoid those people than actually approach them with compassion. And so this challenges me because I can relate to the lawyer. I can relate to the desire to have the appearance but struggle with the content. I'm a lot interested in what do I need to do to look like a Christian rather than what does it be, what does it look like to be a follower of Christ? What has to change in my life to be that kind of follower? I liken it to a few years ago, uh, my family and I went to the Royal Gorge in Colorado. Anybody heard of the Royal Gorge? Man, it's incredible there. And we went there, you know, huge suspension bridge. So the the bridge is is held up. It's a thousand foot drop. It's almost a thousand feet across. And the way that it's it's held up is these giant cables are strung across this this big gorge, and they're they're drilled and and just buried into the mountainside and anchored there. And I think it's like each one of these cables is made up of like 2,100 other smaller cables, and they're bound together. And they used to have in the uh, visitor area, used to walk in, and they would have just one of those cables, like the, the small strands, holding a Volkswagen bug, like suspended from the ceiling. So they wanted you to see just how strong one of these cables were. 
And so then when you walk out and you're about to cross this bridge, you're supposed to see the 2,100, maybe it's 21,000, I don't know, it's a lot, of cables bound together. And if one can hold a Volkswagen bug, then just imagine how many thousands bound together, how much they can carry. And the, the statistics are 25 fully loaded semi-trucks could be on that bridge at one time and it not break. And so they've given you every reason to have assurance in the strength of this bridge. But it's quite a different thing when you're walking out there and you've got your three kiddos and your wife and you're walking onto this bridge and realize that the floor of the bridge is made out of uh, these uh, wood planks. You're like, I'm not, I'm not so concerned about the cables at this point as I am this two-by-four under my foot <laughs> that I can, you can kind of see through the, like, the little gaps in between the pieces of wood, and you're like, that's a long way. And my kids, right, they, they're totally trusting this experience, so they're running from side to side, looking over the edge, spitting to see how long it takes it to go all the way down. And I, my wife is kind of like, okay, kids, and I'm not really concerned about them anymore. I'm more concerned about, okay, all right, I can't quite reach both sides at the same time, so I just need to trust each plank. But as I look down, I can see just how far a 1,000 feet is. And if one of these little planks gives way, it's over, right? And then every once in a while, they'd be like, all right, move up, move to the side, because then there would be like a truck that would drive. And you're like, what? No. And there's cars going by. And at that moment, what I'm most interested in is not whether that bridge appears to look strong. Not that it, it looks like a bridge. I'm concerned with whether it is a bridge. Whether as an architectural structure, it has integrity. It has the ability and is consistent in its engineering that it can actually hold up the weight that it, it's proclaimed to have held up. All the signs and the cool images they give me in the visitor center, that's a lot of talk, but it isn't until I'm on the bridge and I'm experiencing a 1,000 feet above the bottom of that gorge, I have to know that that bridge works. And I'm not interested in it just pretending to be a bridge. And I think the challenge for us is we walk out these doors as followers of Christ, as we say that, as we proclaim that and take that identity. Georgetown, Williamson County, our world needs actual Christians desperately needs people that are filled with compassion. It doesn't need more people that look the part. We have so many people moving into this county. I think the count is like 12 and a half per day or something. I don't know how you have a half a person, but whatever. There's a lot of people coming. And there are a lot of people that are lost in your family in your neighborhood, 
where you work, where you go to school, maybe on your sports team, at the rec center. This place is filled, filled with people that don't know who they are in Christ. They don't know what they were created to be. And they need you and me to actually respond in compassion and take the risk to love them. They need us to actually be Christ followers, not just to pretend, not just to have the right answers, not just to know the law and the prophets and know what the Bible says and have a pithy verse, but they need us to actually live and be Christians. So when that term was first coined, it happened in the church in Antioch. It was a derogatory term. It was a term to make fun of these people, these, these folks that would follow this one named Jesus Christ. And they, they thought, well, let's just kind of make fun of them. And they're like little Christs because they want to be like him. And now we know that that's a bold title. That is an absolutely bold title to be likened to him, to be called a follower of Christ. That means you're trying to be like him. And there's this interesting story uh, from history about Alexander the Great. And as he was on his conquests, you know, he had this robust army and he would conquer new civilizations and they would be absorbed into his great empire. And there's a story, though, of what he, what he would do to deserters, his own soldiers that would try to flee. And there's this one account where a soldier had been caught trying to escape and desert his army and was brought back forward to, to give an answer for why he was trying to escape from Alexander the Great's army. So he comes forward. He's brought before Alexander the Great, and he's on his face before him, and Alexander the Great says, Soldier, what's your name? And the soldier, head down, kind of mumbles, because he's not allowed to look, and says, Alexander. And at that moment, Alexander the Great looks at him and says, Look up at me. So he raises his head looks up, and he says, soldier, you either need to change your name or change your behavior. Because that name, which was his name, it represented something. And so that, he was not going to allow another human being to have his name and not represent it well. Either change your name or change your behavior. And that's a challenge but that's what we're called to. We are Christ followers. We are Christians. That means we're called to imitate our King, King Jesus. And as he teaches us here, that requires integrity. Not just looking the part, but being the part. Being a neighbor, not just knowing who your neighbor is, but actually being that good neighbor that has compassion and responds with mercy. So my prayer is that as we depart from this place, that we flood into Georgetown 
with a bunch of little Christs. Christ followers, people filled with compassion because we have been recipients of that compassion. We have received the grace of God, not because of anything we've done, but because of his good purposes in our life. We remembered it with the body and the blood and the fact that he has given his life so that we can be renewed and restored to the one true God. So let's be grateful, let's rejoice, and let's go have compassion, engage in risky, risky neighborhood lifestyles, all right? Let me pray for us. Father, I love you and I thank you for this morning with my brothers and sisters here at Grace Bible Church. I ask that you would cause this truth to resonate in our hearts, that it wouldn't just be something we hear and file away, but Father, that you would do the work to transform us, that we would be like this Samaritan, that we would respond when opportunities show up in our path, and rather than avoid them, that we would move in closer with compassion and be willing to risk it all to show your love for the people you've put in our lives. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.